Hello and welcome to The Year Ahead, a podcast series where we explore the big themes and events moving markets and shaping the economy in 2024. Today, we're going to take a closer look at the macro backdrop in 2024, what that means for our corporate clients as they begin to think about their hedging, funding and liquidity needs into next year. I'm Imogen Bakra, Head of Non-Dollar Rate Strategy, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by our experts, Ross Walker, Paul Robson and Carla Floyd. Okay, Ross, I'm going to start with you because I think that's the best place to start to kind of set the scene for this discussion. Uh, Perhaps you can just recap our kind of key views on the economy, on inflation uh, and what we're thinking about rates into the year ahead. Yeah, certainly. Um, The UK economy has broadly flatlined over the last 12 to 18 months, and we expect something similar over the next year or so. Uh, The monetary policy tightening that the Bank of England has been implementing since the end of 2021 will increasingly feed through into debt servicing costs, both for households and corporates, and that will further squeeze demand. That weak growth I mentioned is now beginning to show up in rising unemployment. We think, unfortunately, that has further to run. That will constrain demand, but that will help to bring inflation down. And the inflation picture certainly looks a little bit more optimistic, I think, than six or 12 months ago. Those big energy-driven and, to some extent, food price inflation-driven falls are still working their way through the data. Uh, Core inflation is a little bit stickier, but as demand pressures ease over the course of next year, we think core inflation will start to come down a bit more quickly. And essentially, by the end of 2024, certainly early 2025, we think headline CPI inflation will be at or pretty close to its 2% target. And that That trajectory for inflation through next year, through 2024, opens up, I think, the possibility of Bank of England rate cuts. Maybe not in the the early part of the year. Uh, Other central banks, the US Fed, the European Central Bank, seem more likely to move first in in cutting cycles. But we look for the Bank of England to be easing monetary policy uh, in in the second half of 2024, perhaps the first cut coming in, in August. And bank rate coming down from its its current five and a quarter percent level, which we think is the peak, to more neutral levels um, over time, somewhere between three and four percent. Just wanted to pick up on on what you said on inflation there. You seem, um, I guess, optimistic that inflation does return to this two percent target. But how do you assess the risks that actually, you know, not necessarily getting back to a lower level of inflation, but but really getting back to that 2% is going to be hard. And actually some kind of level around 3 or 4% is perhaps considered the kind of new normal when it comes to the inflation outlook in the UK. Well, certainly the experience over the, the past year or so cautions against complacency and how quickly inflation can return to target. I think the difference is now versus a year ago. Why are we more confident today that inflation will come back to 2%? Well, as I say, I think we see clearer evidence of slowing in economic activity and also, crucially, uh, those those weaker labour market trends. And I think that will feed through uh, to the wage setting process. Also, headline inflation falling back very sharply. This time last year, it was running at double digit rates. That lowers that basic reference point for starting point for for wage negotiations. So I think the economic fundamentals give us more confidence that inflation will come back down. Are we at risk of a more persistent overshoot? I'm skeptical about this, or at least I'm I'm skeptical that either the Bank of England would make the same policy error repeatedly that resulted 
in a more persistent overshoot in inflation. And I'm certainly doubtful that they would tacitly just allow inflation to run somewhere above its target. So I think we're relatively confident that the bank is serious about hitting its inflation target. I think the, the more reasonable concern is not will they deliberately try to miss the target, but are we entering a world where underlying inflation pressures, domestically generated inflation pressures, are perhaps a bit stronger than in previous cycles, and that in turn will force central banks to lean more heavily against those domestic inflation pressures. Because what we don't have in this coming cycle, we think, relative to certainly the, the great moderation, the decade up to the financial crisis, but even the period after the, the global financial crisis, we don't have the same degree of global price disinflation. Um, and so just arithmetically, you know, for the UK, imported inflation is, is about 30% of the basket. So if you don't have that falling price pressure from, from the rest of the world, cheaper imported goods, commodities, you will have to bear down a little bit more heavily on domestic inflation. So I think the job for central banks in controlling that inflation is going to get a bit tougher over the next cycle. But I think the idea that inflation might settle or average at three or four percent feels feels too pessimistic. Going back to those economic fundamentals, then you talked earlier about the kind of weaker growth outlook that's already feels, you know, like like it's taking place in the UK. Um, one of the drivers, I suppose, of your view on growth in the UK comes down to how you see business investment evolving um, over the next couple of years. What sort of capex trends do you think we're likely to see among corporates, and how is that feeding into your uh, UK growth view? Yeah, indeed. I I think the the persistently weak business investment trends, essentially, uh, since the middle of the last decade, around the time of the the Brexit referendum, um, are probably for me the, the the biggest medium term worry around the UK economy. Because ultimately, you need that investment growth to drive productivity, to raise living standards. Um, as I say, business investment essentially is unchanged in level terms since 2016. Uh, had the previous trend continued, our capital stock would be around 15% higher. So it, it, it's definitely something which in the near term feels like it will, it will hold back economic growth and productivity and ultimately living standards. So, so this is not an abstract economist concern. This is, this is abs absolutely fundamental to the UK outlook. Now, admittedly, we did see in the first half of, of, of 2023 a pickup in CapEx, but that seemed to be driven by peculiar one-off factors. So the ending of the uh, investment super deduction tax allowance at the end of the first quarter meant there was a bit of a rush to get some of that CapEx um, over the line before that, that cutoff. And in the second quarter of the year, uh, there was some huge aircraft uh, sector activity, aircraft orders, which would boost the CapEx numbers. What we've just seen in the third quarter numbers is that the level of in in business investment fell back very sharply, a drop of over 4%. So I think that what that's telling us is that we've got through a couple of what looked like quite favorable outturns, but were actually one-off distortions, and we've reverted back to this, this lower trend. Survey data on business investment still looks a little bit cautious, a bit hesitant, which isn't a surprise because we we have a sort of cyclical downturn probably coming ahead of us, at least a, a further flatlining in growth. Um, funding costs are higher. 
And there are some post-Brexit structural challenges for the UK economy, essentially, which probably weren't really able to be fully addressed against the backdrop of the pandemic and, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the energy shock around that. So for me, the CapEx outlook probably is a little bit tepid in 2024, but hopefully uh, this can, can regain some traction uh, the following year. Is hoping. <laughs> okay, thank you, Ross. Paul, probably a, a good time to to bring you in then and think about, you know, everything that Ross has been through in terms of how we see the economy and inflation evolving over the next year and what, what you think that means for FX. Before we go into what we think this means for Sterling specifically, perhaps you can just give us a bit of an overview of, um, you know, what you think will be the primary focus for, for currencies as we head into 2024. Yeah, I think for global currency markets, um, they can be framed within this transition from a global tightening cycle to an easing cycle via a plateau in rates. Central banks have spent the last sort of year, 18 months facing uh, a particularly nasty uh, inflation uh, shock from energy and food prices and supply constraints. Uh, they've tightened monetary policy, but at some point uh, they'll call victory on that and start uh, easing. Uh, this is um, fundamentally important for currencies because the short term driver of currencies is interest rate differentials, uh, what the policy rate is today, where it's going. And for the major economies, we think you're going to get quite a lot of divergence and differentiation because not all uh, economies are uh, born equal, um, they will face, uh, central banks will face different outlooks for uh, inflation, policy rates will move at different um, paces, um, and given the correlation between FX and yield, uh, that's going to be uh, important. So the sequencing of any easing of monetary policy across the major economies is going to be uh, important, uh, we think. Uh, the other factor to think about for global currencies is relative growth between the major uh, economies. You know, at what point do we get to peak optimism around the US economy? Uh, when do we get to the point of peak pessimism for the euro area, European economies uh, and Asia? That could be fundamentally important, especially for uh, the dollar, because the dollar is driven by two things. One is relative yields, but the other driver is how the US economy is doing relative to the rest of the world. And at the moment, or it has for the last 18 months, had it all its own way, really. Um, whether that changes in 2024 is going to be the key question for global currency markets because the dollar uh, will lead that. And bringing it back then to, to sterling specifically, how do you see uh, your outlook for the pound fitting within that that? global currency view and and here specifically i'm thinking about sterling versus the dollar and sterling versus the euro yeah i, I think the sterling outlook um, fits quite neatly within that framework and um, particularly the the sequencing of easing from the central bank and, and from the bank of england something that ross mentioned uh, in his opening uh, comments he, he noted that the bank of england might be easing policy sort of later than other uh, central banks. Uh, and the key here is that those two exchange rates that you mentioned, sterling dollar and sterling euro, have continued to track interest rates relatively tightly over the last uh, 18 months. At times, people 
have wondered about interest rate expectations relative to inflation expectations. They've worried about, and including myself, worried about uh, the growth outlook. But the dominant driver of sterling seems to have been interest rate differentials. uh, And that's going to be the focus, we think, as we transition from that global tightening cycle to a global easing uh, cycle. Uh, The other key point for sterling, I think, is this idea that there doesn't seem to be an excessive risk premium in the currency that needs to be unwound over quarters to come. So what's this risk premium? Well, the way I describe it is if you're going to buy a a new car, you have options. You can either go to a franchise dealer, you can go to a specialised dealer, uh, or you could buy it off the internet. And each one of those prices are going to vary because they each come with a different level of risk, a risk premium. And it's exactly the same for currencies. And over the last four or five years, sterling has always come into the year ahead period with really quite a large risk premium. Uh, This in the past has been about, say, COVID. The UK was set to uh, be impacted more than average um, from COVID. That didn't quite work out. Sterling recovered. Uh, Last year, you had the European energy uh, shock to the the economy and sterling did relatively well as energy prices came down. Um, And before that, you had the issues of a potential no deal Brexit. But as we go into 2024, we don't seem to have any of those specific risks around the UK that needs to be unwound. And that leaves the outlook for sterling very much on interest rate uh, expectations. Uh, The third point on the sterling outlook, and this is the the potential Achilles heel for sterling, uh, and that is relative growth. Because as Ross uh, noted in his opening comments, we think that the growth outlook in the UK is going to be really quite poor relative to other major economies. And given that we, we run this current account deficit, that's potentially important. But when we put all that together, we think that sterling dollar might uh, remain relatively constant in the beginning of the year, but start to strengthen in the second half of the year. And for sterling euro, sterling euro might have some upside uh, until the second half of the year once it starts uh, declining. And so, Paul, last question for you is, what would you say is the key message for anyone that's thinking about or needs to hedge their currency exposure in 2024? Well, I think the the key message is really around sterling dollar and this idea that uh, once the US Fed starts to cut uh, monetary policy, uh, the policy rate, uh, we expect it to um, happen relatively quickly. And this idea that sterling dollar could end the year, you know, relatively um, high from the levels that it started uh, the year. So for those out there that have a requirement to buy sterling, then layer in um, exposure um, at the beginning of the year seems to be uh, appropriate. Uh, But for those that want to sell sterling or have a requirement to sell sterling, uh, just waiting for the the second half of the year to get achieve better uh, levels. Um, And it's the opposite for those that have exposure to sterling euro. Uh, We think that sterling euro goes higher at the beginning of the year. So people that need to sell sterling could probably layer in some uh, coverage, but those that need to uh, be uh, buying sterling 
um, over the year ahead, probably holding off until the second half of the year. Uh, those are the key messages. Um, there will be other volatility, for example, in sterling yen, we think. Uh, but the key message for corporates is watching this dollar uh, exposure through uh, 2024. Great. Thank you, Paul. Okay, Carla, I'm keen to bring you in here and think about everything that we've heard um, from Ross and Paul and, and what that might mean for our corporate clients going forward. So starting with the kind of rates and inflation backdrop that we've discussed, um, do you think that we're going to see big shifts in the attractiveness of different pockets of liquidity that corporates have available to them in 2024? Yeah, thanks, Imogen. I mean, Look, really, this has been the case and, and, and the story for the past few years um, since COVID, where, where we've seen those kind of ebbs and flows, both from a from a technical perspective, um, where, you know, it may be um, undersupply or, or saturation of the market or, um, you know, and, the, and then the impact that has on investor cash balances, but also the credit environment and how banks are, are responding to that. So, you know, if I think about some of the key um, pools of liquidity as we talk about it for corporates, I mean, firstly, starting in the capital markets, um, we've seen that, that actually corporate supplies up year on year across euro and, and sterling um, balances. It's around 17% up. But th that's really been um, the, these sort of pockets of attractive liquidity. We've had, we've had sort of droughts where there's been very limited um, issuance. And, and then, then these periods where... Um, where really strong levels, uh, you know, on a comparative basis, have allowed attractive windows for for corporates to issue into. But conversely, on the U.S. private placement market, there we've actually seen, you know, a real sense of undersupply with um, issuance down twelve percent um, in twenty twenty three today. And and sort of interestingly, within that, UK issuances are are kind of particularly um, quiet and down. And and there's two factors at play there. One of them is is the higher level of rates and 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 sort of the sort of discomfort with with gilt yields where where they are. But the other one is that relative value of of different markets where we've seen issuers have access to both public and private and and looking at that um that that opportunity and and the public markets have offered more competitive levels. So you know, and then, and then if I take it back into the bank market and 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 bank liquidity, you know, that there's sort of a the market's down around 20%. A lot of that is driven by limited M&A, but also that where people haven't needed to fund, they haven't. So, so I guess bringing that into conclusion, I don't think this is a new phenomenon. I think it's something that we've got quite used to um, over the past couple of years. But with some of those, uh, some of the uncertainty around rate outlook, currencies, you know, inflation, you know, add in low growth, geopolitical tensions, regulatory changes, the story continues to be have access to different pools of liquidity, funding by diversification wins um, the day here and, and, and sort of be ready to respond and, and be nimble uh, to market changes when they present themselves. You touched briefly on um, kind of bank appetite there and also regulatory changes. And I just wanted to pick up a, a bit on that in more detail. You know, how do you think that bank appetite for lending will be affected kind of by new and, and potentially more stringent capital rules coming down the line? Yeah, look, it's a really interesting dynamic. So, um, you know, I, I guess the first thing to say is, is Basel IV is not yet, or, you know, the evolution of Basel III is not yet. Um, sort of lockdown and, and how it plays out and manifests itself across the different regions will be interesting to see. But but it's currently forecast to come in in 2025 with a kind of phased implementation 
approach through through kind of the next three to five years. Um, but, but you know, as it's currently presented, if if what is is fully implemented, we're expecting for the largest U.S. Corp, um, the largest U.S. banks, we're expecting them to hold approximately twenty four percent more capital than they do today. So invariably, that is going to have an impact. Um, and what we're seeing is that sort of starting to play through now and, and banks having to particularly as we plan ahead to 2024, have to think about what is that, um, you know, what does the new world look like un- under that capital regime? Um, so, so what does it mean? I mean, look, there's kind of the key thing is looking at relationship returns. And, and I know that's sort of a, a, a sort of somewhat obvious thing to say, but we're definitely seeing increased focus around the full client relationship. So access to ancillary business um, and, and also banks being sort of comfortable to take a step back, whether that be exit relationships or down tier their, um, their lending positions where those returns aren't satisfactory. You know, so that's the capital picture. Then you add in the credit and the, and the sort of macro challenges that, that we've sort of touched upon and we're facing into. We're definitely seeing some of the dynamic around flight to quality, differences of bank strategy, of, of the sector appetite um, that people are, are thinking about. And also ESG comes in here at, at the moment. ESG considerations are becoming much more mainstream. Um, it's less of a product. It's more of a how does that, impact lending decisions from a credit from a capital and from a strategic perspective so you know it it, it's definitely acute in terms of how banks are thinking deals are taking longer to complete but the liquidity remains um you know as i said the the banks have seen have stepped up when needed um but it's just about staying close to your banks and for banks staying close to your clients yeah that that makes sense in summary then given everything that that we've been through on this pod you know whether it be through a timing perspective or thinking about the structure or or otherwise how do you think that organizations should be thinking about funding themselves and about risk management in 2024 yeah look i think it's quite a simple message um really it's be nimble be proactive and stay close to your banks um, so on the funding side, if I take that first, you know, markets will continue to be volatile. Uh, you know, 2024 is, is going to be quite an interesting year, a bit of a pinch point, both in terms of bank capital, as, as we referenced, and, and also, you know, the, the macro headwinds, which aren't, there's no sort of obvious end in sight. It's, it's sort of going to be an interesting year from that perspective. So, you know, having that access to different pools of liquidity, really knowing what your um, what your options are and, and what your banks are thinking, um, testing it beyond the, the sort of your relationship manager into actually really testing um, whether that liquidity is is genuinely there. And, and also the time you spend with your other investors, your institutional investors, away from necessarily needing to go to market and wanting to go to market. Non-deal roadshows are absolutely something that we've seen being used to really good effect um, this year, this year and last and then, you know, flipping to the risk management piece, clearly it's heavily embedded and ingrained in the broader funding discussion, comfort with, with a kind of longer term, higher rate environment. You know, whether we end up at 3%, 5% and, and you know, when those rate cuts kick in that, that Ross talked to, I think the one that that's unknown. But the one thing we absolutely do know is we're not returning to a period of, of the last decade of, of rates at 0 to 2%. 
you know, generally, I think corporates have got a lot more comfortable with a higher sustained, higher rate environment and, and the impact that has on funding costs. But what it does mean is your risk management strategy is, as margins are compressed, as, as CAPET needs, you know, you want to support and, and, and you have a look at that. And I think ESG and, and, and transition will play an interesting part in, in that dynamic as well. How, therefore, you manage your um, your key kind of hedging policies and risk around rates, around currencies will be absolutely critical because what we don't want is a scenario where, you know, issuers and our, and our corporates are, are are sort of caught short and 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 things haven't been sort of pre-planned. So so it's be nimble, be proactive, plan and stay close to your banks because they are that they're absolutely um, you know that the the access to sort of some of the data and, and some of the, the the keys to unlocking this um, this sort of challenge. That's great advice. Thank you, Carla, and thank you, Ross and Paul, also for joining today, uh, and to our listeners for tuning in. Um, please make sure to follow us on social media to get more insights into the year ahead, and remember to click that like button so it's easier for others to find.